This is a Bloody Good Podcast where we discuss the mysterious, the unknown, and the unsolved. Are you ready? Hey everyone, and welcome back to a Bloody Good Podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Wilson. So before we get started, I just want to make a couple of announcements. So as many of you know, we weren't able to post a podcast last week, but we are hoping that this episode, which is super juicy, makes up for it. So the biggest announcement that I have for you is that our new podcast release date will be on Sundays. As you all know, we were previously releasing a new podcast every Friday. However, in order to be more consistent for you guys, we decided that Sunday would be much better. So the release time will still be about the same, which is like 7 or 8 central time. We hope that this doesn't bring any major inconveniences to any of our listeners. So for episode 7, we are talking about the self-proclaimed prophet Rock Tyrio and the Ant Hill Kids. Listener discretion is definitely advised. This man went on to do some pretty weird, fucked up shit. So, as we like to say... You have been warned. Alright guys, so let's jump right in. Rock was born on May 16, 1957 in Quebec, Canada to Hyacinth and Perrette Thierio. Rock was the second of seven children and was the eldest boy. Now, there is quite some controversy surrounding his childhood and as to what the real facts are. Some sources suggest that he grew up in a militant, conservative Catholic family as his family followed the practices of the White Berets, which is basically like a Roman Catholic organization that promotes social credit economic theories. These sources also suggest that his parents were super strict and disciplined and were abusive with accounts of them punching him in the stomach and pushing him down the stairs. However, other sources state that the family denies these claims and that Rock's father suggested, I never beat the boy, but I punished him when he needed it. Many sources refer to Rock as a liar and a manipulator who enjoys kind of playing that victim role and that he lied about being abused by his parents in effort to seek sympathy and attention. Now, I personally believe that his parents were likely probably abusive in many ways, but that Rock may have fabricated additional stories regarding the extent of the abuse. Even the father's quote of, I never beat the boy, but I punished him when needed it, kind of leaves a little room for interpretation, so I don't know. But apparently Rock was a very intelligent, outgoing, and charismatic boy, and he seemed to pretty much stick with that overall kind of edge throughout the years. He enjoyed learning and had a special interest in reading, especially when it came to the teachings of the Old Testament and the Bible. Now, because the town's local school only went up to the seventh grade, Rock never finished school, nor did any of his siblings. On November 11, 1967, at the age of 21, he married a 17-year-old girl named Francine Grenier. They went on to have two children together. Unfortunately, a few years into their marriage, 
Brock developed severe stomach pain and was diagnosed with ulcers that required surgical intervention. Now, the surgery wasn't too successful, you know, they were hoping that it would cure his problem, but instead he ended up developing dumping syndrome, which caused an excessive amount of pain and vomiting. Unable to find an effective treatment for his pain and Dissatisfied with the effects of his antacids, he turned to alcohol as a pain management technique and coping mechanism. He also became super obsessed with medicine and taught himself a great deal about anatomy. This, in my opinion, was basically the major turning point in Rock's life. So Rock ended up losing work and moved back near his family and started a small business behind his parents' home, dabbling in woodwork and creating things like hand-carved mugs and plates. With his consistent drinking, he began showing signs of overt sexuality and increased violence. On weekends, he would visit the Quebec City, have affairs, and pick up women while his wife was at home caring for their two kids. One of the women he had an affair with was named Giselle, and this name will actually be pretty important in just a moment. His woodworking business didn't fare too well, and it ended up going bankrupt, and so once again he was unemployed, and all of this just proved to be way too much for Francine, who eventually left him. Now, Giselle and Rock started dating officially after Francine left him, and he moved in with Giselle, but he also often slept in the back of his truck, apparently in efforts to maintain some type of image. Now, depressed and quite a mess, Rock discovered the Seventh-day Adventist church led by a Guadalupean pastor named Pierre Zita. Every Saturday in a hotel nearby, Zita would preach on the second coming of Christ and the importance of conservative living. Now, liking what Zeta was putting down, he decided to ditch his Catholic background that he absolutely hated for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, this church is known for its emphasis on diet and health and its holistic understanding of the person, promotion of religious liberty, and its conservative principles and lifestyle. The church did, however, discourage its member from consuming tobacco, unhealthy goods, caffeine, alcohol, and drugs. So, as a result, Rock gave up drinking, which was great. Rock began selling Adventist literature door-to-door, -door, and impressed by Rock's charisma and social skills, Zeta put him in charge of organizing and running workshops to help free people from drug and nicotine addiction. While running these workshops, he attracted a few church members who decided to join him in pursuing the mission to detoxify Quebecers. Now, most of them believed that this project would be great for bringing a new meaning to their lives. They began spending a lot of time together and would actually spend weekends at Giselle's apartment. In 1977, Rock and his followers attended an Adventist retreat on Lake Russo in Ontario. There, he met a few more individuals who joined his group. At one point during the trip, Rock went hiking by himself, and it was at this time that he had a vision in which the sky supposedly lit up with a white radiance and the voice of God spoke to him. Rock became to believe that he had a special mission on earth and that he was different from other human beings. Now, realizing his influence and reputation as a healer and his advantageous connection to the Adventist, Rock decided to open a healthy living clinic in a rented two-story house 
where they dispensed alternative medical treatments and sold organic foods and holistic literature. Several of the clinic's patrons volunteered their time or gave financial donations. Some literally uprooted their whole lives to support Rock and his mission. Now, the clinic actually did really well and made good money while attracting more followers. Now, the practices of the clinic weren't very effective at all. So, for example, a wife of one of the group members named Geraldine was suffering from leukemia and was ongoing treatment in a hospital in Quebec. Now, Rock didn't agree with the number of medications that the treatment required and convinced her husband to move her to the clinic for treatment instead. Now, his prescription, his prescribed treatment for her was grape juice and organic foods. To him, that's all she needed to cure her leukemia. Unfortunately, this didn't work and Geraldine died soon after. And basically, Rock just said, oh, well, you know, when God wants people, he takes them. It was Geraldine's time. And apparently he says that he did bring her back to life momentarily by giving her a kiss, but since it was her time to go, it was just her time to go. Now, this death actually led to increased police attention, which Rock was not too fond of. Now, many associated with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, including Zeta, strongly objected to Rock's kind of eccentric practices, and he was voted out of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on April 1978. By June 1978, the Healthy Living Clinic was beginning to struggle and sink into debt as the clinic had been cut off, you know, from the literature and the health items that they were previously being supplied by the church. Rock also was increasingly becoming irritated by all the police attention. So Rock decided, you know, the best thing to do is move in order to isolate his followers from what he considered the evils of the outside world. So on July 6, 1978, Rock announced that he was told by God that a war between good and evil was about to come and that the world would end on February 17th 1979 amid a storm of boulder-sized hell, earthquakes, and lightning, and that they needed to prepare. So he moved his commune to the Gasp Peninsula via hiking to a mountainside he called Eternal Mountain. Here he claimed they could all be saved. Now the goal was to form a commune where people could freely listen to his motivational speeches, live in unity and quality and be free of sin. As a result, Rock forbid his followers from contacting their family. They were forced to renounce their possessions, eat as little as possible in order to avoid the sin of greed. They had to consult with Rock on all decisions and they had to respect the dress code. It eventually got to the point where he controlled their sex lives. He forbade members to speak to each other without him being present. And he even forbade mothers from personally looking after their own children. Shortly after their arrival in the GASP, Rock decided to give each member a new name to mark their new beginning. Members were asked to draw names from a hat such as Cain, Judah, Gideon, Rachel, Salam, things like that. 
As for Rock, the members decided to rename him Moses. Group members also referred to him as Pappy. Now, living in a new area, members slept in tents while they were forced into hard physical labor to build their new community. Of course, Rock used his stomach pain as an excuse from participating in the labor. The members worked hard with very little sleep. One of the former group members, Gabrielle, explained they worked so hard that they barely had time to think, which is pretty much exactly what Rock wanted. He ended up naming his group the Ant Hill Kids because they worked together like a nest of ants. A couple of group members did decide to flee while they could, you know, while a handful of others actually stayed. The community cabin was finally finished in September of 1978. In October of 1978, Giselle, which at this point was his wife, remember they were just dating after Francine left him, but they did become husband and wife, went to Rock expressing that the women who had not been married were lonely. So then Rock got the bright idea, okay, well, I'm going to declare all the commune marriages void and I'm going to marry all the women to myself. Now, these marriages weren't like official marriages. They were more of like a marital agreement, if you will. Now, this was very upsetting to Giselle, who was six months pregnant at the time, as she only wanted Rock to herself. Now, when the Jonestown Massacre occurred on November 18, 1978, doomsday cults became a household concern reattracting police attention. So all in all, this new life really started to bring upon its own share of stressors and he began to drink again. Because remember, he had stopped drinking when he had joined the Adventist church. But now he's stressed out, he's trying to establish this new community. So he began drinking again, he began eating and drinking milk, meat and cheese, and all those sorts of things. The group was also struggling financially, so he did decide to prostitute one of the followers, Gabrielle, to a local grocer in order to supply them with food. As time passed, Rock slowly and slowly became more and more abusive, and here are some of the accounts of the things he did. If any of the members fell asleep during his sermons or complained about anything, he would beat them with a four-inch thick club or punch them in the stomach or force them to stand outside naked. And it didn't matter if it was sunny, raining, snowing, whatever. One time, Marcy, who was pregnant at the time, ate more than her share of pancake rations during a breakfast. And so Rock punched her in the stomach, breaking two of her ribs. At one point, Marcy began talking about leaving and... So Rock instructed Jacques, which was her husband by law, to cut one of her toes with an axe as a form of punishment. Now, when Jacques hesitated and, you know, really didn't want to do that, Rock taunted him, saying, What are you, a faggot? Don't you have any balls? If you want to be a man, you have to learn to teach your woman a lesson. Jacques started crying, and Rock threatened to cut off all Marcy's toes. Jacques then reluctantly cut off one of Marcy's small toes. He would also routinely urinate on his followers. If members wished to leave the commune, he would hit them with a belt or hammer, suspend them from the ceiling, 
pluck each of their body hairs individually, defecate on them, and, as what he did with Marcy, have people of the group cut off parts of their body, or he would do it himself. He would also make members break their own legs with sledgehammers, sit on lit stoves, make them shoot each other in the shoulder, eat feces and dead mice, smear themselves with each other's feces, and force them to perform analingus on one another. One of the group members recall, to avoid being punished by Moses, members had to adhere to all of the rules and control their behavior. Terio viewed himself as a judge, scrutinizing the members' purity and ability to respect the group's norms. Transgressions resulted in beatings by Moses and sometimes by other members. In fact, purification sessions through violence were one of Moses' favorite methods of punishment. There were purification periods when, completely naked, Moses would tear us to pieces until we could find the inspiration we needed to write about our wrongdoings in our community newsletter. Following these sessions, we would lay all over the house so wounded that once I had to fill a five-gallon pail five times with water to wash away the puddles of blood on the floor. We were all stuck in the ideal of a sacrifice that would make us God's children. Daily tasks, in addition to other work, were our only salvation. In our ignorance, we were slipping into the depths of personal degeneration, and this created traps in our relationships, affection for each other had disappeared. Each of us wallowed in dreadful and depressing isolation. And um, two of the sources that I referenced actually provided two letters that members actually wrote to Rock. Hello, Pappy. I am writing about what you said on the subject of nutrition. It is very true that I nibble a damnable fault, which I will never again repeat. The thought of ingesting such a large quantity of food in so little time discourages me, even if I work outside the entire day without eating. I ask that you forgive me. If it is stealing, I did not realize it. It is this fault which causes my plumpness. I do not want to be a fat and plump servant. That is too ugly next to the man that you are. I don't know what to think about everything and the meaning of my actions. I only know that I will not repeat them, and I don't speak lightly. I wish to be a true servant to you, my master, alert, vigorous, and with a clear and lively spirit and well-balanced to serve you every moment of my life. I have a long way to go. Thank you, Pappy. I love you. The other letter read, Good day, Moses, my master. I would have liked to have talked to you yesterday evening, but I think it is preferable to write these things down rather than saying them for fear of talking too much. I am going to talk to you about the last fit of anger that your master exercised through you. I really believe that what you did doesn't come from you, but from someone much higher. For my part, I really believe that you were possessed by a very powerful spirit. That's what I saw in what you did the throwing of the knife, the rifle shot, the harm done to Mammy. My eyes saw things that went beyond them. My body is very afraid of all these things. I understand it very well because of the law of death in which it exists, but within myself I am well. I am very well and very happy to belong to a real master who himself belongs to the only real master of life. Love, Rachel. 
Now, you guys tell me what you think about these letters, but you can see the type of power and control and influence that he exerted on his members, okay? Now, in February of 1979, when the apocalypse did not occur, people began to question Rock and his wisdom. However, Rock defended himself by saying that, oh, well, you know, the earth and God's time, they're, they're not parallel, and, you know, that was just a miscalculation. And that was pretty much good enough for his followers. On January 3rd, 1979, Moses actually fathered his first child in the commune, and over the course of the cult, he would go on to father over 20 children. And the children, unfortunately, were not exempt from his abuse both physically and sexually. He would hold them over fire, nail them by their clothing to trees while he commanded others to throw rocks at them. He also deprived the children of education and told the children that God lived underground and that God sometimes demanded blood sacrifice. Rock would hold secret rituals just for the kids and would, for example, disembowel a goat while naked. <laughs> That's not strange. He would host chanting rituals with upside-down crosses and even group sex rituals where Rock and his teenage son would molest and rape the children. He would also sometimes have the children masturbate him or watch other group members masturbate themselves or others. And to Rock, this was the proper method of sexual instruction. So his frame of thinking was like super fucked up when it came to stuff like this. Now, Rock actually did go to jail once before his like final imprisonment. In early November of 1980, an individual by the name of Guy Veer joined the commune, and he was actually the first new member of the group since the Healthy Living Clinic was in business. Apparently, he had undergone treatment for depression at the same hospital that Rock underwent psychiatric valuation back in 1978, which, by the way, Rock was determined to be mentally sound by these people at that hospital. Now, in order to be allowed into the group, Veer had to pass Rock's examination, and he did to a certain extent, so Rock allowed him to stay in a storage shed away from everyone else. He was not allowed to be a part of what Rock considered his family. He was given a small wooden stove, 24 bottles of homebrewed beer, two hens, a rooster, and one meal a day. One of the jobs that Veer was given was to babysit whom Rock referred to as the animals, which were actually the children that were not the seed of Rock's. And so there were three children. On March 23, 1980, Rock hosted a party at the commune in celebration of Rock's two sons from his first marriage to Francine, coming to live with him on the commune which I don't know why the hell they would want to join him in the commune, but I'm sure they had no idea what the fuck was going on at that time. Veer, of course, was not invited and was left to look after the three outsider children. Now, there's two versions of what actually happened that night, but the official version of what happened given in court by Rock, Veer, and, you know, a couple of the communers is that the two-year-old baby was crying all night and keeping Veer awake. So Veer got frustrated, 
picked up the baby by his throat, and he plunged his fist into the child's face five or six times. The next day, Rock discovered what happened, and the baby head was noted to be flopping around on his neck, and his penis had swelled up. Rock, being, you know, the master healer and surgeon that he was, decided to introduce alcohol into the baby's system as an anesthetic and performed a circumcision with the help of Gabrielle, who was a nurse before joining Rock. Needless to say, the baby died of alcohol poisoning. Now, everything was pretty quiet around the commune for about six months after this, but in a drunken rage, Veer became Rock's target again, and he decided that Veer should finally stand trial for his crime that he committed previously in March. He was found not guilty, however, by reason of insanity by the members. But Rock, he wasn't pleased with this, so he decided that his punishment should be castration. For this job, Rock used an elastic band, a razor blade, magnifying glass, a pair of tweezers, and ethanol. After the procedure, Rock went on to terrorize and torment him until Veer was finally able to escape on November 5, 1980, to a nearby village where he spilled the beans about the death of the little boy. Police then raided Rock's compound and arrested Rock and the boy's parents, which were Marcy and Jarkis, and the remaining children at the time were relocated to foster care. After the coroner determined that the group was criminally responsible for the death of the little boy, they were charged for criminal negligence. After a nine-month trial, Gabrielle was sentenced to nine months in prison and three years probation. Rock was sentenced to 14 months in prison and three years probation. Marcy got three years probation, and then Jacques got six months in prison with three years probation. Veer, however, was acquitted for mental incompetence and returned to the mental hospital he was previously treated at. There were also a few other charges against other members of the groups, but we won't get into that. Now, here's the crazy part. Members of the group distributed themselves between four apartments in Quebec City to be near Rock while he did his sentence. So they didn't flee. I mean, some did, but for the most part, a good number of his following stayed in these apartments near where he was serving his sentence. The previous community that they were living in was actually bulldozed to ashes by the authorities. Now, for the remaining group members, Rock would actually regularly phone these people, talking all this bullshit into their ears. And so when Rock was finally released from prison in February of 1984, they were all, you know, waiting for him and ready to go back to him and his ways. The commune then relocated to Burnt River, Ontario, where they built a new settlement. And even though Rock promised that things would be different this time, as, you know, he was no longer drinking and there wouldn't be any more violence, it did not take long before Rock returned to his drinking, his strict, brutal ways, and the commune was suffering from financial problems again. The group, since it was referred to as like an institution versus a family, was denied funding. Rock then ordered his members to steal from the local grocers in a town called Lindsday, and he basically wanted them to steal any and everything that they needed for their community. 
On January 31st, 1985, one of the members was actually caught by the police and they were banned from shopping in Lindsday eternally. The group then settled for selling fruit and baking goods and so they raised these things themselves, they grew these things themselves, they baked these things, you know, on their own. Doesn't really say like where they got the money to start this, but apparently that's what they did. This was actually a pretty good success, but if members didn't bring in enough money, they were punished. In 1987, social workers removed 17 children from the commune after one of the children fled after having been severely beaten. He told the police that he had been sexually assaulted by Rock. His drinking then worsened as time passed and he began claiming again that he was a holy being and started performing more unnecessary amateur surgical operations on sick members to demonstrate his healing powers. After his bouts of violence, Rock would then cry and beg God to stop using him as a tool to implement the Lord's justice. So here's an example of one of his amateur surgical operations. So one of his followers, Solange, complained of pain in the abdomen. So Rock forced her to undress, laid her on the kitchen table, punched her in the stomach, performed an enema by shoving a tube up her rectum and filled her up with molasses and olive oil. He then cut her stomach open, ripped out parts of her intestines with his bare hands, and then requested another member to stitch her up. A tube was then shoved down her throat, and he made other women blow air into it. Unsurprisingly, the woman died the next day. After her death, Rock claimed to have these strange dreams about her in which she takes shape from Rock's semen. So Rock became convinced that Solange was to be the first reverse birth, which is basically like a spiritual rebirth through the belly of the male. He truly believed that he was pregnant with his deceased wife, Solange. And so Solange's body was exhumed and Rock masturbated into a hole drilled into her skull. Needless to say, Solange never came back to life, but he decided to keep one of Solange's ribs, which he wore as a necklace hidden by his beard, and he collected some fragments after her cremation to place in a jar with olive oil that he regularly masturbated into, still an attempt to bring Solange back alive. On another occasion, in a drunken state, Rock took notice to one of Gabrielle's fingers, which was paralyzed. He ordered her to show it to him, and when she did, he stabbed Gabrielle in the hand with a hunting knife and insisted that he needed to amputate her hand to prevent gangrene. Instead, though, he amputated her entire arm and cauterized it several times with a metal rod heated by a blowtorch. She then fled to a nearby women's shelter, but then returned when he pleaded for forgiveness. Upon her return, he amputated part of her breast and smashed her head in with the blunt side of an axe. Other acts of violence that Gabrielle endured previously included blowtorch to her genitals, extraction of like eight of her teeth, a hypodermic needle breaking off into her spine, 
She also at one point suffered from a prolapsed uterus that protruded about three inches outside of her vagina, and so Rock attempted to fix it by punching the uterus back inside Gabriel's body and fashioning a wooden cone and truss to plug everything up. When this was ineffective, he then tied a piece of string around the exposed portion and tried yanking at it like a loose tooth. It was a whole year before Gabrielle was able to get a partial hysterectomy at the local hospital. On August 16, 1989, she finally fled for good and made it to a hospital. On August 19th, the police arrived to the compound with an arrest warrant. However, the compound was completely deserted by the time that they got there. On October 6, 1989, police were able to catch up with Rock. At this time, Giselle, remember his technical wife, confessed to police about the murder of Solange as well. Now, Rock ended up being sentenced to 12 years, which was later reduced to 10 years because of Rock's genuine remorse and concern for the victim, according to the court, for his injuries to Gabrielle. The police also pressed charges against Rock for the first-degree murder of Solange, but since there was insufficient evidence that the murder had been premeditated, he was instead trialed for a second-degree murder.